0: Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute.
1: I'm joined by my colleagues. Julia Georgia with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities and Dalibu also with AEI. On our podcast,
0: we talk about the many threats and dangers that have arisen along a line that runs from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, what we call the Eastern Front, and how those matter to the United States and indeed to the world. We're very pleased today to have as our guest, uh, our colleague at AEI, Dr. Leon Aaron, one of the leading experts uh, on Russian affairs uh, for uh, certainly at the course of my career, uh, Leon, I'd say, as long as I've been alive, but uh, uh, that would age both of us. So it's really great to have you here, uh, Leon, and in particular to talk about your new book, uh, Riding the Tiger, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the Uses of War. Uh, So I hope you'll um, walk us through uh, the arguments you make in that book. Uh, as we proceed. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Leon, again, most welcome. Riding the Tiger. I hope Vladimir Putin has a saddle because whatever beast he's riding is a pretty wild one. Please uh, give us your take on Vladimir Putin's Russia and in particular the uses of war.
2: Well, first of all, thanks to all of you for finding the time to talk to me. Uh, uh, riding the Tiger, I guess I, it's it's a metaphor for uh, politicians um, uh, choosing a, a seemingly dramatic um, way out, a shortcut, um, but then, but then, um, uh, being unable to to either walk uh, back, uh, whatever consequences um, uh, that choice um, engenders, or, um, uh, well, in, in in effect, being consumed um, uh, by this choice. Uh, I think this is probably what, what happened to Putin. The, the book is, you know, I started it before, um, before the war um, on Ukraine. Although uh, the original title was A Small Victorious War, um, the students of Russian history among, among our listeners uh, would know this. This became almost a, a cliché proverb. Um, in other words, to, to prevent a revolution, start a, 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 a small victorious war. It was said just as The disastrous war uh, between Russia and Japan uh, was getting underway in uh, 1903. So the the idea was um, that uh, whatever happens, uh, and I did predict the war, although I predicted a different war in in 2018, um, or rather a different target for Putin's aggression, and we can talk about this. the sense was, the war in Ukraine, one way or another, will end, and we can talk about that as well, of course. But the Russia that Putin created, that Putin forged, uh, the house, as I, as I, one of my chapters, I think, is titled, the house that Putin built will remain. Uh, of course, short of uh, his ouster, which is unlikely, um, and uh, or, or his physical demise, which is more likely, I think, unfortunately, um, uh, for Russia than, than the ouster, but appears to be, despite all the rumors, in a, in a rather um, uh, uh, good health. So we will have to live with that Russia. And uh, the, 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 this guided tour of, of the house that Putin built, I think um, ought to uh, persuade us that, that he created a country, um, um, a nuclear uh, superpower uh, that he inherited and primed it for war. This militarized patriotism, as I called it, Became the foundation um, of his regime's legitimacy. It will stay there, um, and we will have to uh, reckon with this with this uh, Russia.
0: Leon, if I could just uh, take the introducer's prerogative to follow up on this. So, the house that Putin built. Um, to what degree would you judge it to be built upon previous foundations, either Russian imperial or or Soviet? I mean, if you look at sort of the long arc of Russian history over the last 500 plus years, it has been one of expansion. And the collapse of the Soviet empire was really uh, one of the largest scale imperial implosions in recorded history. And, And Putin himself has manipulated this history or the myth of Russian history, not only for propaganda purposes, but he does genuinely seem to take it to heart, What's your take on that? Can you kind of pick, it, pick that apart for us and help us and help our listeners understand how much is Putin specific and how much is the larger legacy of the Russian past that he's either channeling or, as you say, that not only will exist beyond Putin, but pre-existed Putin?
2: Well, Giselle, you you gave 75% of the answer. Um, (laughs) These these
0: questions are always in the form of a statement.
2: (laughs) Let let me just sprinkle a few few, um, uh, pieces of icing on on this cake that you served. So Putin, um, in the last, what, by now almost quarter century, uh, positioned himself as a Russian patriot. Uh, And he may very well be one. uh, But, of course, uh, most of his life um, uh, was spent under the Soviet Union. Uh, he is the Soviet patriot, first and foremost, it, and, 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 I, and I track that in the book. Um, in addition to what he actually said, he said, I'm a product of, of Soviet patriotism. And of course, the, the, by now, almost, um, again, another proverb, um, that, that the uh, demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. What I think uh, Putin saw immediately, because he was the Soviet patriot, and what the revolutionaries um, of the Gorbachev era either did not notice or did not pay too much attention to was the colossal trauma um, inflicted upon millions of Russians um, when the country that they considered to be exclusively positioned in the world, and especially with regard to the United States, which of course is, you, you know, From Lenin on, they measured themselves against the United States. It's a very interesting uh, question. We can return to this. In any case, a military, um, strategic, cultural and moral counterbalance to the United States. And the fall was extremely precipitous. And Putin, very skillfully, and I think, again, as you said, it was not all political technology. It was also sort of his instinct, which, which worked extremely well. He began to uh, build on that feeling of loss, on that sense of indignity um, very carefully with his, uh, you know, again, you'll find plenty of, plenty of examples in the book. Um, one of the interesting things that I found, they did a bit of a side research in the, in the notion of humiliation in, in history, and humiliation could be a very effective dark matter that fuels all sorts of disasters. I mean, you know, Hitler is in the humiliation of Germany um, after World War I, but there are others. Uh, you know, th- there are other examples that, that those who study this give. So he turned around this humiliation. He began to say that yes, we were humiliated and defeated, but I am now the embodiment of this new Russia, That is an heir to the glory of the Soviet Union. And then he did a very interesting thing, unprecedented as far as I'm concerned, um, and I did some research on this again. Um, He equated uh, Russia with the Soviet Union. This is a very interesting uh, historical revisionism because, obviously, the Bolsheviks uh, wouldn't do it because, as Lenin said, uh, among other things, uh, the Russian Empire was the... um, uh, prison of Nations, and they they had nothing to do with it, and they killed, you know, many civil servants of their empire, including, including of course its head, uh, Nicholas II, uh, and the revolutionaries uh, would not do it because they were ashamed of what the Soviet Union has done. So here comes the man, and he says several times, "Well, but what's what's Russia? Well, Russia is the same Soviet Union, uh, just under a different name." And that fusion, I think, was very instrumental to um, the new legitimacy that he created, to that militarized patriotism built on um, the recovery of the Soviet superpowership and the glory and, of course, a very clear subtext of revenge.
1: Would you also add to this um, if there are any milestones along the path that you're describing towards building this house of Putin. Um, You reference at the beginning um, the war in Ukraine um, it, there's there's two invasions, the full scale and the 2014, and to me he's been not just in military planning, as it as it turns out, um, uh, long term in in both cases, but also in the way he talks to his domestic audience as well as to the international community, including through references like. Um, the Soviet Union's fall was the biggest catastrophe of the 20th century, he starts building this house, as you're describing, uh, in relation also, of course, to the United States and to the West. So um, looking back over the last, let's say, decades, um, what are to you the most important milestones in, in building his house?
2: Well, the sort of preview of coming attractions. Came into that famous Munich speech um, that he gave at the conference on Secure 2007, completely flabbergasted everybody, because remember he inherited the most, the freest, most democratic Russia that ever existed. He was also served, and of course you know Yeltsin does not get any credit for this, but Putin was also served on a silver platter, a, a completely re- refurbished Russia. I mean, this is no longer uh, uh, an autarchy. It was a country with functioning banking system, private enterprises, booming economy, tremendous cultural and economic activity uh, of its citizens unlocked uh, by this freedom, complete freedom of speech, uh, freedom of, of the press and so on. And so he comes to Yurik and he says, oh, and by the way, before that, there was a wonderful uh, this time, this is not ironic. A wonderful speech, um, I quote in the book, that he gave in Berlin, I believe, uh, 2002, 2003, which which was greeted by a standing ovation. We are part of Europe. We are, you know, looking forward to being part of Europe, and so on and so forth. Uh, the apocryphal story there is that is that uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel. Um, uh, leaned to whoever was sitting next to her. Uh, This was a speech in German that Putin gave. Uh, uh, Leaned to somebody who was sitting next to her and said, I guess we've gotta be uh, grateful to the KGB at least for that. And so then there is this speech in Munich. Um, We are a victim of aggression. Uh, Suddenly the the expansion of NATO uh, become a mortal threat to Russia. Uh, You're dictating the world. Uh, what to do you are uh, you uh, the us is still not it's still not uh, mentioned and then of course came what I, I think is a programmatic speech which essentially contained all the seeds of, of this poisonous flowers and fruit that we see today and that of course is March 18 2014 uh, celebrating the occupation uh, of Crimea everything is there um, uh, the, the so-called diktat of the West, uh, uh, the color revolutions. Um, uh, is Russia going to submit uh, and stay on its knees or is going to become a, 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 you know an independent proud power? You will never break us. Uh, and what was interesting, of course, and I think the key was that essentially Putin laid, laid um, um, a, a, an impenetrable border uh, impenetrable barrier between Russia and uh, collective West that there, there cannot be any uh, uh, there could be truces but they cannot be um, a, a formal and, and definitive uh, reconciliation now to your question Julia, I think that's very astute the main audience for Putin is always domestic is always domestic and the irony of this of course is that well of course after after he you know invaded and occupied Crimea uh, the story changed but until then Russia was probably um, in the most benign geopolitical environment of its history in other words all of these you know it became the part of G8 which is you know essentially was smuggled in. it doesn't deserve it by any any means uh, either collectively you know economically or politically Uh, you know uh, all sorts of uh, bridges, all sorts of very enthusiastic support by the West. And, and to me, this, this shows the time has come for him to make that pivot, and I explain why. Um, because until then, the legitimacy of the regime and Putin's popularity, which is one and the same, uh, everybody hates the regime, uh, but, but but they, they like Putin, uh, was based on economic progress and the phenomenal growth of incomes, about 8% a year between 1999 uh, 1999 and, and 2009. They are, he comes back to his third presidency, and in addition to this enormous, uh, uh, still the largest uh, protest rallies in his, of his reign, uh, he's told by everybody, including his best buddy Alexei Kudrin, that either we'll liberalize the economy and politics, or at best we will crawl along, uh, that forget about this phenomenal growth. Um, and, and by the way, Kudrin, of course, was right because unbeknownst at that time, um, Russia already entered the longest uh, stagnation period of its modern history 2009 2018. Uh, growth of 1, 1.5, and that's exactly what Kudrin predicted. Uh, and of course, uh, Putin rejected uh, that. I detail Kudrin's program of economic and political liberalization, well, for obvious reasons. Um, and instead, he chose to shift. The basis of his regime's legitimacy and his popularity, of course, uh, from this economic progress and, and growth of incomes, to what I called uh, militarized patriotism, and and this is I think this is where it all started, and and going back to the tiger, the tiger was settled, and and made trot in the right direction, but again um, I'm not sure that that I'm not sure Putin wanted to get off that tiger but but the tiger wanted you know
0: needed, uh, tiger had its own ideas
2: <laughs> <laughs> it had its own ideas and it needed um, uh meat the the bloody and the warm the better
3: so if i can just pick up on the tiger metaphor so so i assume you know if you if you do try riding a tiger i mean the the uh, in, in in the end the tiger will eat eat you, right, or, or bite off your head. So, so I wonder if you could sort of, you already alluded to you know, what might happen in the future, but I wonder if you could sort of look into the crystal ball again. There has been so much talk during this war of possible off-ramps for Putin and, and how you know, we can sort of give him a dignified exit from all this. Yesterday, I saw a clip by BBC Steve Rosenberg, who's in Moscow reporting, uh, on the new Putin-themed calendar issued by Komsomolskaya Pravda, which is a pro Kremlin tabloid. Um, so you get a you know we get a picture of Putin for each month of the year, you know Putin playing with uh, puppies, Putin on a submarine and so on and so forth. And, and and so what Rosenberg says is that it is very striking that in this twenty twenty four calendar there is no reference at all. To the war, all of the pictures predate the war. They are two years old or, or even older, and you know, there has been plenty of opportunities for for the, the creators to reference the war. You know, Putin announcing the annexation of these newly occupied territories, Putin decorating the quote unquote liberators of Mariupol, uh, what have you. But 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 it's been sort of carefully scrubbed away, and clearly there has been a sort of editorial decision made about. Clearly, there's a sense that the war is a liability. Uh, and if it continues to be a liability, you know, how, what, how, what, what's their thinking about how, you know, he can extricate himself from from, 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 from this?
2: That, that's, that's a key question, Delavor. Putin's been very clever about this war. Uh, first of all, you still cannot call it a war. It's a special military operation. Uh, and stupid, though, it seems, of course, the sense is, oh, this is something on the side. Um, this is something that, that, you know, we can sustain, not quite, you know, as small as Afghanistan, but, you know, we can, we can deal with it. Um, enormous monetary rewards for uh, the killed. I mean, there, there are villages in Russia that are economically revived uh, based on the killed and wounded. I mean, they, at close to 100,000 bucks. Now, remember, um, uh, Russian average salary is about $2,500 a month. Uh, so, so, for the first time, people could, I don't know, buy a car. So that's the first thing. The second thing is his vehement resistance to uh, overall mobilization. I mean, this is starting with Prigozhin, starting with, with the patriotic bloggers. They've been, you know, screaming bloody murder, uh, blue in the face. We need, uh, uh, we need to, to, to really secure, uh, or at least hope, for a breakthrough in this war, we need we need essentially cannon fodder. We need we need uh, uh, the mobilization. So not only he well he went along with the so-called partial mobilization, but here too he was very clever. Uh, uh, some of my Russian sources calculated that if you are um, a, a national uh, an ethnic minority somewhere in Siberia, um, you know Altai, you have seventy times more uh, of a chance to be killed in this war than if you are in Moscow or St. Petersburg. Uh, he's been cleaning out uh, the suburbs and, of course, the Caucasus, um, uh, Dagestan and so on. Kadyrov is there with Chechnya, of course. As always, right, where, where the children of the elite are, you don't really mess about too much. Leave them alone. And apparently, you know, I, I'm barred from, from, from going to Russia. But, you know, friends and and, and, and colleagues tell me that Moscow is just as it was before the war. Um, you, you, you don't see anything except for the patriotic uh, slogans on the walls. Now, how to get out. So, so Putin's, I mean, he does not, and, and Giselle knows that much better than I, I mean, he does not have the wherewithal, he does not have the weapons, he does not have, most of all, the morale for any sustained or the talent, as Prigozhin, I think, showed quite well, um, uh, or the the, uh, officer talent, to uh, attack, to create a decisive military victory. So the game is to wait. The game is to wait for the sole purpose of the West getting tired of Ukraine. As Putin just told the Valdai gathering, what do you say? Within a week, if the West stops supporting Ukraine within a week, it disappears. And so, and so that's it. This is the World War I uh, war um, in the trenches. Um, uh, Putin, I, unfortunately, and again, uh, I hope to be corrected by Giselle, certainly within a year or so, I don't think we could expect um, any you know, decisive erosion of, of the uh, communication hubs, of the supplies, That is apparently uh, sort of uh, uh, seems to be the strategy um, of Ukraine uh, to lead to any decisive uh, breakthrough. The problem is, and for Putin, is that two can play this game. If, contrary to his calculations, the West does not get tired uh, of Ukraine, then he is not invulnerable. Again. It's very hard to calculate, but uh, some some of the uh, Russian analysts believe that he spends $300 million a day on this war. Uh, okay, so it's $100 billion plus a year. You know, n- not not small change um, for a country that's one sixteenth of the U.S. Um, GDP. But most importantly, again, for Putin is the popular mood. I don't think this war uh, could be hidden from the Russians for you know, years and years to come. You know, as Trotsky said, you know, you may not be interested in this war, but this war is interested in you. So, so this war might, at some point, be very interested um, in, in, in the Russian population. And Putin may confront the choice of, uh, uh, of uh, general mobilization. Well, uh, I have the last chapter of this book where I described at least one possible Hail Mary for Putin, which is to attack a, a, um, a NATO country solely with the purpose of a very quick stop, truce, um, and let's bring the world, literally, to the brink of an all-out um, uh, nuclear war with the US. Stepping back, I'm, I'm channeling Putin here, stepping back from this madness, let's do an overall settlement. This, this has gone too far. And by overall settlement, of course, is largely, you know, Crimea is Russian, Donbass, you know maybe some semblance of of Ukrainian theoretical sovereignty but its self ruling and so on and so forth i you know we don't need to go into details so i think that's where we are with this war
1: can i ask you also about specifically ukraine i don't know to what how long and i think the points that you're making vis-a-vis um how this is sustainable or not in the long term are um, very valid in, in numbers and in, in morale. What I do know from the what we hear from the front lines is that um, soldiers are describing right now in Ukraine that they've never seen from Russia throughout the last one and a half years what they're seeing now. It's waves and waves of Russian troops that are being meat grinded into the into the battlefield. And of course, one Ukrainian manages to kill six, uh, six Russians or, or somewhere there in terms of numbers, but they are dying too. A unit whose, uh, whose head I was speaking to the other day or through a friend, um, they were 35 last week, they're 20 this week. Um, and so they're describing something that will go on through the, through the next few months, exactly um, in the vein that you're describing for now, Putin manages to keep... Um, to keep kind of a, a wall um, uh, between the, the big cities and the troops that are actually coming um, to the that are actually mobilized to the front lines, and for now he manages to tap into the human resource that he has that is still overwhelming compared to Ukraine. But but I do want to ask you because you're you're looking um, with with nuance into. The way Putin and not only his apparatus are um, are nuancing the war in uh, in Ukraine, and I want to ask you specifically about the antipathy vis-a-vis Ukrainians. Is that something that Is that Putin has been tapping into and building, just like he's building in parallel his house that you're describing? Um, Was there a foundation to it, in other words? Or um, is that something that he built out of the blue um, on his own um, devices without without the Russian population to the extent that it has a voice to be able to weigh into that. They're just being portrayed as the new Nazis, the new enemy, um, and the new proxy. How do you see that? What is specific? How does Putin build his Ukraine house or his house of hate for Ukraine?
2: This is, uh, this is um, <laughs> one of the most fantastic stories. Uh, it's, you know, a year before the war, Putin publishes an article essentially saying we're the same people uh, with the same people um, brothers uh, which they are I mean ethnically very close um, and of course you know this I'm not going to go into the mythology of it presumably the Russian state as Putin sees it uh, started in, in, in Kiev but of course you know there are all kinds of if and buts what, what exactly started in, in Kiev and rus but the point is how do you exactly how do you get out of this dilemma? Well, um, it's not the Ukrainians. it's the Nazi leadership. And as I pointed out in a in a recent piece, not only it's a Nazi leadership, it's a Nazi Jewish leadership, which which is a particularly piquant twist um, to to the whole to the whole story so so uh, you know, killing two birds with one stone, um, um, as I said, you know, Putin finally, uh, this is a very interesting development, uh, after resisting state anti-Semitism, which of course always accompanied any Russian war, or for for that matter, any classic reactionary leader in Europe always uh, 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 leaned back on on anti-Semitism. For all kinds of personal reasons, Putin resisted it and then he cracked. Um, He cracked uh, uh, this past summer uh, because whatever his you know, favorite judo coach and whatever his judo partners and whatever his favorite teacher of German for whom he bought an apartment in Jerusalem, the job requires it. I mean, we are back all the way to the Russian history where every war is a war on the Jews, uh, one way or another. So here he is um, with, the Germ- with, with the Ukrainians generally exonerated, uh, and in fact, uh, in, in one of his last, uh, at least public, uh, appearances, um, uh, praised Ukrainians for being terrific fighters, um, what, <laughs> yet another thing for which he was killed. Um, so so um, that question is no longer allowed to be surfaced. Are we fighting Ukrainians? No, not really. We're fighting this miserable regime that was installed in Ukraine by the West, the United States. In the coup uh, that that uh, you know disposed of Yanukovych in February of uh, uh, 2014, so so this is this is where we are. It's a bizarre bizarre situation, um, but um, you know th- there it is, and and uh, apparently you know even given the incredible incredibly high rate of intermarriage uh, and and uh, between the Russians and Ukrainians and millions of ethnic Ukrainians in Russia, uh, and vice-versa. It is sort of, you know, uh, I guess it's another tribute to the power of the leader and the media, state-controlled media, in places where civic society is very weak. Um, You can turn public opinion around very quickly, or you can silence uh, public opinion on on the matters that you don't feel are useful to you.
3: If I can just pick up on this anti-Semitism theme for for a moment and uh, ask a question for a friend, in fact, for my wife, she she we were having this conversation last night. You know, why why is it that um, Putin in this current conflict in in Israel has chosen so explicitly to take uh, the Hamas slash Palestinian side, uh, totally jeopardizing its relationship with with Israel uh, after having, you know, invested so much into it. Now you have, you know, members of Likud basically speaking of of, of the war in Ukraine and, 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 and the threat that Israel is facing as being one and the same thing. Um, there seems to be no going back towards, towards Israel-Russian relationship as it existed before. Uh, I mean, it seems to be a sort of massive, massive investment. So, so, so my first question is why he took this, decided to take this step. Uh, my second question um, is related to, 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 to a big theme in your book, which is this interplay between Russian orthodoxy um, and, and this surge of militarism. That, that that Putin propped since the, over the past decade and, and and a half, you know, erecting a cathedral to, to to the armed forces and connecting Russia's greatness to all sorts of socially conservative causes, anti-abortion campaigns, and so on and so forth. I just wonder how effective that actually is. Because Russia of the 1990s, of the 90s, never struck me as being particularly religious or, or spiritual, notwithstanding the usual clichés about, about Russians. I mean, how much does that actually resonate in the population, and how much people are able to sort of see through it?
2: So, so anti-Semitism, uh, very interesting. So, uh, essentially, he in two interviews that I, and, and I cite them in in a piece that I, I think I did for political, He essentially uh, ties. Um, uh, Zelensky um, to this war. In essence, he's telling the Russian people, the Russians and Ukrainians are killing themselves because of this Jew uh, uh, puppet of the West. I mean, this he he, he he doesn't have to say it explicitly, but if you have two centuries of, of severe anti-Semitic prejudice in that country, uh, you don't you don't have to draw a picture for people. I mean, they could connect the dots. Um, he also, interestingly enough. Uh, referred to his uh, formerly very important friend, um, we know him from the 1990s, Anatoly Chubais, in in fact, a man who, along with Alexei Kudrin, brought Putin, um, when he lost his job in uh, St. Petersburg, uh, brought Putin uh, to Moscow, and and Chubais left. Chubais left in the first months of the war, quietly. Well, not anymore. Uh, So so Chubais, who happens to be uh, half-Jewish on his mother's side, all of a sudden i mean completely i mean it was clearly a prepared question from the audience well what happened to chubais well you know i'm nothing against Chubais, uh but you know what the funny thing is he was anatoly borisovich uh when he left and now he is moshe israelovich um uh, in israel i mean a complete complete first of all there are no patronymics in hebrew and, and as far as i know chubais did not change his name but this is a typical, you know, KGB uh, disinformation. Uh, you know, just hit on that spot. Okay. So why? Because the time has come. <laughs> the wall said, as 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 Alice and Wonderland would say. Uh, the time has come to bring back uh, one of the um, uh, pillars of uh, any Russian reactionary regime, which is anti-Semitism. Um, and I and I mentioned what Stalin did after. World War II with the you know, doctor's plot and all of this, which I think at the time at least signified that the things are, you know, there's something rotten in, in that Denmark. Um, and and you, you don't, especially because of Putin's quite obvious personal lack of anti-Semitism, which again is unlike most, if not all, uh, previous Russian rule, So, uh, with the exception of Yeltsin and Gorbachev so here he is uh, and I thought that this is was a very interesting symptom of, of you know being shaky domestically and now uh, uh, you're absolutely right y- you know Russia under Yeltsin uh, I think even under Gorbachev but I have to do is definitely under Yeltsin definitely under Putin until now every time there is there was a, a terrorist act in Israel send the most heartfelt uh, condolences all of a sudden in the relationship with, with Netanyahu was very uh, 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 cordial, not a phone call, nothing. So a couple of things here. Again, uh, as Tolstoy mentions in the uh, uh, in I think in, in, in War and Peace, uh, the heart of the Czar is in the hand of God, meaning meaning you do what the circumstances force you to do. Well, you don't send condolences to the Zionist cancer. Uh, uh, when, when Iran is sending you uh, drones, uh, when, when you send your you know, alter ego, Nikolai Patroshev, who is the uh, uh, head of the Security Council, to negotiate with Iran well beyond drones, the um, exchange of um, uh, even perhaps nuclear technology, but also definitely uh, some, some of the Russian uh, more advanced weaponry. So, so there you are. Uh, the, the game changed. Um, Putin does what he has to do uh, as a leader. With respect to the um, Russian Orthodox Church, I mean, you know, ever since ever since uh, uh, Ivan the Terrible poisoned the last independent uh, 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 metropolitan, uh, Philip, poisoned or strangled, we're not sure. And, and then and then Peter the Great finished off. Uh, uh, by, by breaking the, the, the back of any independent Russian <coughs> Orthodox Church, making them all uh, 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 civil employees, uh, creating a synod, and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it was always um, a, a state institution. Uh, now, of course, it reached <laughs> kind of an apotheosis here, because you know, I have in my book uh, photos of the priests sprinkling holy water on nuclear weapons. So the Metropolitan uh, uh, Kirill uh, turned out to be just absolutely shameless, um, uh, and paying for it by by uh, the, the Russian Orthodox communities outside Russia leaving uh, uh, Russian Orthodox Church in droves, and of course the Ukraine has already I, I'm sorry Ukraine has already broken up that tie. Um, just absolutely shameless Uh, he you know (laughs) the latest is that is that um, uh, Kirill's uh, one of the encyclicals is that is that those who die in the war are destined for paradise so so I mean I think I think there's some there's some cribbing there from from Iranian manuals as well Um, and and that, that has by the way that has never been the case um, in all the Russian wars, starting with you know 1812, they never said that you know the, the you know whatever the 70 virgins are not there yet, but but the but the the, the road to paradise is open. Uh, how much that uh, is affected? You know, the the, the adverse side of this, uh, the flip coin, was that the Russians never really, having never had reformation. Um, never really had any personal um, kind of passion uh, for their church Uh, you ask uh, you know the polls repeatedly ask Russians uh, you know are you a Russian Orthodox oh yeah 75 80% well how often do you go Uh, uh, stir maybe you know uh, maybe Uh, so 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 that part Unlike the other um, um, elements of the house that Putin built, I think it's going to collapse. Uh, is going to collapse very soon, as soon as the state um, stops essentially propagating this type of um, of, of the attitude. Uh, the, the Russians, you know, even Belinsky, you know, said that uh, that uh, <laughs> the Russians have a proverb that yeah, we have icons. Yeah, it's fine when they're they're on the wall, but they're also very good for covering pots. So, so, so you know, it, it was a strangely um, um, atheistic people, not because of any self-conscious or intellectual atheism, but but because the church has always been so corrupt and rotten.
0: Yeah, before we let you go, um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to expand a bit on the last part of your book title, which we haven't really discussed. It. Uh, that namely uh, the uses of war, uh, also a kind of a very resonant phrase. If there's not a, you know, very erudite but impenetrable uh, manual uh, f- from the general staff in the 1930s with that title, then there should be. What what do you mean by the uses of war uh, in the in the Putin context? And and as a final. You know, uh, crack. It does seem to me that sometimes, I mean, you may think you can use war, but sometimes war uses you in ways that you don't anticipate. But how do you read Putin in that context?
2: What I think I tried to say, um, I mean, it could have, you know, the subtitle could have stopped at, you know, Putin's Russia uh, or something, something. The uses of war, I think, is there to alert the reader that, you know, or rather pull the reader from the obvious. the way uses of war beyond you know, the standard one, uh, you know, you know, beyond the, the fantastic notions advanced by Putin and our, and our realist friends, that there was some external danger. There was never an external. Incidentally, this is definitely for which Pr- Prigozhin was killed, because one of his um, uh, most important, probably the most important statement, was that there was never danger of, of NATO, from uh, NATO attack from Ukraine, um, the war was uh, had started under false premises and it was started by the incompetence in the general staff and the oligarchs who wanted to make money on this war I mean that that is a death sentence right there so So, what are the uses of war to support the regime? first of all uh, uh, he He primed that the tiger was there. he primed that country for war, and the war happened and Again, you know. I don't need, I mean, the analogies with, you know, other dictators are so obvious. Um, you, you base your, your legitimacy popularity on, A, um, there's an external danger, it's very acute, but I'll defend you. Uh, and then it almost inevitably morphs into not only I will defend you, but I'll defeat the enemies and, and uh, I'll, I'll create the triumph for um, uh, our great sub-country. So that's one of the uses of war. Um, Another one, of course, is sticking it to the West. Remember, Putin essentially declared the war on the West in that uh, 2014 speech after he uh, previewed it in in Munich, but then actually uh, uh, announced it in in 2014, the Crimea uh, speech. The friend of my enemy becomes my enemy. Incidentally, uh, going back, why Putin is silent on 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 the Hamas uh, atrocities? Uh, well, Israel was sort of a friend. You know, remember Putin? Putin was the first and remains so far the first and only Russian or Soviet leader who ever paid a state visit to Israel. But now things are very tough, and a friend of my enemy becomes my enemy. So so Ukraine is. And finally, um, as, as, you know, as, as I mentioned in the book too, uh, Putin could not tolerate, talking of the uses of war, uh, Putin could not tolerate um, a, 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 a Western-oriented democratic and presumably eventually prosperous Ukraine. It was an existential threat because it was denying him all the things that or the major construction Uh, constructions of his, uh, all the, all the, you know, bearing weight elements of the house that he built were existentially denied by Ukraine. You know, you don't need a dictatorship, you don't need a war, you don't need a a, a perennial contest with the West um, to be independent, to be free and democratic and most of all, uh, uh, prosperous and open uh, to the rest of the world. So that, you know, these are, these are the uses of war um,
0: that uh, that I saw there. Leon, friend and colleague, thank you so much for helping us unravel the riddle, solve the mystery, and uh, clarify the enigma that Russia so often is for for us in the West. Uh, so thank you uh, again for joining us. I hope the book does achieves the sales and the, the notoriety that it that certainly deserves um, and that uh, Especially people at important places, read it and learn from it. So, for me, Giselle Donnelly and
1: Julia Zosia
0: and Dal Hajc. Thank you to our listeners for joining the podcast. Uh, If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you may get your podcasts. But get some podcasts. Don't be caught short of podcasts. And if you enjoyed the program, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. You can find more material from the Eastern Front crew, both in the show notes and the newsletter that we put out on our website, AEI. Org. Please also uh, subscribe to us or follow us on Twitter or X or whatever you prefer to call it. But there are so many ways to access the work that we do. Thanks again, and until next time, see you later.